The views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Sunday afternoon space show program. That's California time. And uh, I'm the host of the show, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in. And uh, we're glad that you're here with us. A couple of quick announcements. Uh, this program will uh, probably be on the 60-minute format, but if we're still going, if you have questions or emails that you would like to ask, we will stay and, and handle and process all of your telephone calls and your questions. So please uh, do watch and pay attention to the time. But again, uh, we're, we're starting out towards the 60-minute uh, program. A couple of announcements about this coming week. Uh, Joe Carroll, who many of you know, is returning to the show Tuesday evening on artificial gravity, his tether work, and uh, related work. Uh, a name from the past is back with us on Friday, January 14th, Dr. Jim Wirtz with Microcosm, also teaches aerospace engineering at USC in the graduate school. And Jim has a lunar development economic business concept that he wants to put forth. And he's got three PowerPoint presentations about his ideas, and all three of those presentations are posted on our blog right now. So you, you should be able to review those before the program on Friday uh, if you're going to listen and as you will want to uh, know what Jim is talking about and probably you'll have a lot of questions to ask him. And then on uh, Sunday the 16th, Brian Dunn will be on to introduce his concept called Tube Town. That's one word, T-U-B-E-T-O-W-N. And then uh, January uh 18th, Tuesday, we're going out a week in advance, uh, Bob Zimmerman returns to the space show. So those are my upcoming announcements that I would like to make. And um, our newsletters are all ready to go. Every, everything is updated on the website, and the email newsletter will go out at 6 a.m. California time tomorrow. If you're not getting the email newsletter and you want to get it, uh, please send me your email address, and I will add it to it today. Uh, being Sunday, okay? Uh, but all the other newsletters are current, uh, so you can see what we have planned for now and on into the future. Everything we do is archived. Don't forget we have our store with Pepper uh, listening to the space show. If you're still interested in logo wear items, check it out. And then we are a listener-supported 501c3 nonprofit radio program, and listeners-supported means you, the listener, those of you just like you listening now do support us, and I know we're just coming off of our annual drive, but uh, uh, we look for support on all space show programs, and um, 
We hope you will support us if you haven't done so uh, at all or recently. And since we are a nonprofit, if you are paying U.S. federal taxes, you do get a tax donation for your gift. And the same is true uh, with the state of California and maybe your state as well. You'll have to check your state to see if uh, our status is, is uh, acceptable in your state for tax deduction. And if you need my help on that, please email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. We have a big PayPal link at the top of our homepage. That's the easiest way to support us. You can send a check also to Box 95, Tiburon, California, 94920, made payable to One Giant Leap Foundation. And, um, again, we're listener-supported, meaning you, the listener, keep us on the air. We have sponsor programs and billboard programs. Our sponsors are Northrop Grumman, the Space Foundation, Astrox, AIAA, Moonwords, Celestis, and the National Space Society. If you want to use uh, this opportunity as a billboard to promote your ideas, uh, you can do that too. You can put your ideas out on the banner ads and change it as often as you like. Uh, and also in the promo messages that I would be reading on the longer space show programs. Uh, so that brings me to the uh, program for today. So uh, I'm happy to introduce to everybody Professor Anna Krelov. She's a professor of chemistry at the University of Southern California. She received her professional training from Moscow State University, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and UC Berkeley. Uh, she's also held visiting professorships in Germany, Spain, and the Netherlands. Her research is focused on theoretical and computational quantum chemistry. Uh, she develops theoretical models for open shell and electronically excited species and investigates their role in combustion, solar energy, bioimaging, and quantum information science. However, she is with us today to talk about her additional line of work, uh, which is the peril of politi politicizing science, mixing science with politics. And she is published on that, and some of her work is on our blog, which hopefully you have had a, a chance to read or at least review before today's program, because that is the topic of today's show. Professor, welcome to the Space Show. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you, David. Very excited to be on the show. Uh, well, thank you. Why don't you start out with a, a little bit of a, an introduction about yourself and, and your work and, and how all of this led to your interest in, uh, in pointing out the perils of politicizing science. So you actually were born in the Ukraine, is that correct? Uh, more precisely, USSR. So it's a country that is no longer on the map. So Ukraine was part of it. Um, so the, so the, when did the country no longer become on the map? When did that go away? In 1991, so the USSR was no more, and uh, Ukraine became independent and Russia became a separate country. So I left country in 1991 with the USSR passport, but when I wanted to come back a couple of years after that, I was told by the consulate that I need now to do something else and either get a visa or reapply to Russian citizenship because USSR was no more. Could, could you have uh, applied for Ukrainian citizenship and done it that way? Uh, no, because I studied in uh, Moscow and we immigrated from Moscow. So okay. It was part of Russia. So 
I was not eligible because of the Ukrainian citizenship for us. So from Moscow you went to Jerusalem for Hebrew University, is that correct? Yes, we went to Israel. I did my PhD in Israel. We stayed there for six years. And after that, I came to as a postdoc to UC Berkeley, and uh, I get a job offer from USC. So I've been there ever since. Um, so um, there was no automatically accepting people into Russia that had a passport originally from the USSR. You had to apply and start all over again. It wasn't an automatic transfer. Not automatic, but that was not a difficult uh, process to renew because they just exchanged the USSR passport with uh, my city of origin from where we left, which was Moscow at the time. So, uh, um, do you speak Hebrew? I speak Hebrew, Russian, Ukrainian, a little bit of German, and a little bit of English. <laughs> I apologize for my accent. <laughs> it's just, yeah. um, and so you've been uh, at USC. When did you start at USC? 1998. So you've been there quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yes. So how do you go from all of your chemistry work to uh politicizing science, science and, and politics. Was it happening with your work? Did you see it with your peers? Or, or Give us the origins of that. You know, I never was uh, looking too much outside of my chemistry domain and was spending most of my time working on chemistry research. But uh, during the past couple of years, it became impossible not to notice uh, an intrusion of ideology into scientific enterprise, into science, into our everyday practice. And uh, it was uh, very scary for me. It is very scary for me because the parallels with uh, what I remember from Soviet Russia are very uncanny. And there were many examples of that, and I think the last kind of straw that triggered me to write the article was um, a referee report which I received for as an editor. I am doing editorial work for the journal of, um, published by Royal Society of Chemistry, Physical Chemistry, Chemistry Physics. So I received a paper that was talking about solar energy and some computational work that uh, was aiming to improve solar cell capacity. And in the introduction, the authors... Uh, duly mentioned the limitations of solar energy technology and referred to Shockley weather limit. So it's a theoretical estimate published by Shockley at Quasar. Uh, Shockley was a um, very important person in semiconductor industry that uh, evaluated the maximum efficiency of solar cells. And, uh, you know, the focus of the paper was finding better solutions to solar energy. So, and the paper was reviewed. I get referee reports, which were the usual combination of, uh, you know, suggestions, critiques, uh, pointing out some uh, improvements, and so on. But then one referee said, well, the authors refer to this limit as shockley weather limit, and technically it's correct, but politically it's not really advisable to continue use this name. And they may want to reconsider uh, and uh, replace this and call this limit the detailed balance limit, something like that. And then the referee cited a couple of papers 
which I wasn't aware about. So I read, and there was one paper published in American Chemical Society Journal that talked about how names of Shockley and other scientists, like Fritz Haber, should be removed because uh, the scientists crossed the line. And um, uh, so uh, I knew about some of these uh, controversies about uh, scientists, but uh, such as Fritz Haber, for example. Uh, I read about others, and um, uh, I thought that... Uh, uh, so, so I felt very strongly about uh, uh, this issue because I thought that the writing history and counseling people and uh, uh, judging them by today's uh, principles is wrong. And it also reminded me strongly of Russia where history was constantly rewritten and scientists and politicians were constantly counseled, removed from photographs you know, historic documents were airbrushed and so on. Like, there was a uh, running joke, for example, if you read the Russian newspapers in archives and look at historic photographs, you will often see that number of heads on the photographs do not match number of pair of feet because they were often <laughs> airbrushed not very <laughs> professionally. So, yeah, so that kind of made me um, think, and I decided that uh, I should uh, speak to our community and bring uh, these uh, parallels with the uh, history of totalitarian regimes, which I experienced firsthand, because I believe that there are important lessons uh, we can learn from there. Um, do you... What was your your feedback, or maybe the, the better word would be blowback? Were you criticized? Have you been criticized? Or I guess in the modern day language, you would be canceled. So uh, what what has happened? I mean, obviously you're still alive and talking to us. So so you're, that's you're, a very you're good question. Uh-huh. Yeah, because when I first uh, wrote the first draft uh, of this article and sent it to a bunch of friends. Uh, almost uniform reaction was, Anna, don't do it. Uh, you will regret it. Uh, you know, it's a dangerous thing nowadays. You will never get a life out of it. And uh, I still decided that I will go out because I felt so strongly about science. I thought it's a hill, you know, I'm totally willing to die on. And um, when paper get published, uh, it was interesting because the reaction was uh, very prominent and uh, the paper got on Twitter and uh, was uh, uh, broke. The record for the journal in a few days. It became number one by attention record. And uh, there were a lot of uh, Twitter posts, about like uh, several thousand by now, 2000, no, I think slightly less. And uh, I also received about up to 400 emails probably by now. They still keep coming. And uh, uh, to my pleasant surprise, there were more positive tweets and emails by large fractions than negative. So, and um, there were, of course, also negative reaction, blowback, as you said. Some people were calling for paper to be removed. 
some paper people were comparing me with people who previously were counseled and making suggestions that I should be you know, subjected to all kinds of punishments, but they were a minority. So that was extremely positive lesson for me. So it gives me hope that our community uh, you know, can stand up together and push back against the council culture that get hold in our um, you have a note from uh, John in Fremont, who, by the way, is also a, a Cal graduate, just letting you know that. Um, and he said, what line was being crossed when you mentioned that? Please describe more about the line that's being crossed. Ah, so uh, there is not a single line, but, um, you know, when we study history of science and look at different sciences, uh, they were humans. And they lived, some of them lived in extremely complicated times. And humans are not always strong, and they make mistakes. Humans are also vulnerable to uh, wrong ideas. So if you look at the names that I mentioned in the paper, so the first name that initiated this paper, Shockley, right? He's right. He's a prominent uh, scientist, uh, really can be credited for solar energy technology, which is very important for us. And uh, his scientific uh, work is incredibly important. However, he did have some pretty abhorrent ideas. So he published, for example, uh, about the connection between race and IQ, that, and these publications really you know, revealed that he had extremely racist ideas. So there is no discussion about it. So um, another example, Fritz Haber, uh, Fritz Haber um, uh, he is a physical chemist, and uh, he is responsible for developing practical means to fix, uh, to fix nitrogen. And technology that we use now that feeds the planet, literally feeds the planet because nitrogen fixation is an important part of agriculture, and without it we cannot produce enough crops to feed the earth population. Um, so he developed this technology. And um, he also have done more important things in science. And at the same time, he was um, extremely patriotic uh, and loyal to German government, including uh, their military ambitions. He was the person who developed and deployed uh, uh, poison gas at Ypres. So he was the one who, you know, brain, uh, brain behind this uh, technology and also executioner. So that was definitely a line that he crossed. Now, the question is, do we need now to remove his name from, uh, and, you know, obliterate his name from history? Or should we just... Uh, learn about it and uh, learn some lessons about uh, about the past. So I think we should we should learn and not remove name and say that that name should not be mentioned. Now, uh, the problem with these cancellations and with the line is that it's getting redrawn because in these two cases you have really serious uh, serious uh, uh, problems with these two scientists. 
But if you look at broader list of cancellations, you will see that every day there are new names added, and you see that uh, this line is getting redrawn. Uh, there is the most recent cancellations of Huxley, a prominent biologist. People call him Darwin Bulldog. Uh, he was a very vocal uh, opponent of slavery, and he was also speaking um, very um, open, very actively for women's rights and so on. So he didn't cross the line, but, uh, you know, people dug out some quotes from him, took them out of context and uh, called for his cancellation because uh, they claim that he crossed the line. But uh, the line definitely gets very far from uh, from where, you know, it was for this other case. I have another question. I have another question for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is from Julie in San Diego, California. And she says, um, I'm curious what happens when you're teaching in your class to students in today's time period. And you mention these professors. Do the students demand that you quit mentioning them? Do they want them canceled? Are the students at all tolerant? Because from what we see in the news, in most instances, the students are the least tolerant. So what is your reaction in your classes? So uh, my friends are worried about me because I do like mention the names of scientists in the class because I think it makes uh, science a bit more personal and it's interesting they mention to it. I mention Maria Curie name, I mention Schrodinger name. I mentioned Fritz Haber's name, and I mentioned uh, his uh, both roles. I talk about Fritz Haber, uh, about uh, Haber Prot, Haber Bos, and I also talk about chemical weapons. And so far, I didn't uh, get uh, complaints, but it may change. And I heard from my friends from other universities uh, who also teach chemistry, and some of them get complaints that. They mention names of scientists that are not diverse enough, for example. That's a new type of complaint. So it's not just scientists that cross the line. It's scientists that do not promote the idea of diversity. And some people told me, some colleagues, that they stopped mentioning any names altogether because they do not want to have any trouble. So it's real. So it didn't happen to me in my class, which I appreciate. But... Who knows? Any, any pushback from the college administration where you're at? Or no, no. Uh, nothing at my college. Yeah, so just, you know, from community I get some nasty you know, reactions from some people. But, uh, but uh, so far, uh, not, uh, no real repercussions. You know, I do not know what will happen with my funding. <laughs> <laughs> um, John, uh, who started this line of questioning, sent in a follow-up and said, who defines where the line is, or, or I guess who, stab- who establishes the line? So that's a problem that there is no uh, objective way to define it. And I can give you another example how universities uh, approach this. So usually what happens, you know, there is a group of activists that put petition 
let's cancel Huxley, remove his name. Or, you know, in Caltech, for example, uh, recently, there was a petition to remove name of Millikan. Millikan is a, a famous physicist, uh, and many people learn about him in school when they study physics because he uh, set up this brilliant experiment in which he determined charge of uh, electron, elementary particle. And he also was playing an important role in Caltech as the president. He was the chairman of the governor board and is responsible for bringing Caltech to where it is now. And um, so there was a petition to cancel his name, to remove his name from the buildings and professorships. So what was the um, uh, discretion? He, at some point, was a part of the Human Betterment Foundation. It's the uh, organization that uh, had some eugenic beliefs. So that's true. No one argues about it. Um, and Caltech put together a giant committee, and committee collected all the evidence and consulted and, and decided, uh, yeah, that the name has to be removed. Now, uh, you can see that university put a lot of work into it, but uh, uh, once and uh, actual resources. So, like one problem that I see with this renaming uh, Olympics is that universities and organizations put a lot of resources and people that could be doing uh, educating students or doing science or spending hours on these committees. Now, in some schools, uh, I just learned about the cancellation campaign in uh, Iowa State when they, there is a petition to remove name of um, Carrie Cat, who was a leader in women's suffrage, and they have a building named after her. So there is a petition to remove her name because she said something that by today's standard is interpreted as racist, which, you know, you can read for yourself and judge whether it's fair or not. And university not only established committee, university paid $33,000 to an outside firm to gather and organize evidence. So that's how committed universities are in <laughs> fulfilling this, in addressing these campaigns. You have a caller on hold, but you also have another email. I'm going to real quick go to the email. Uh, this is from Bob in Boston. And Bob says, when David introduced you, he said that you uh, had professional training from Moscow State University uh, and then later at Hebrew University. Uh, I'm wondering if at either of those universities you encountered this cancel type of culture, or is that something unique to what's been going on over in the United States? Well, in Soviet Russia, in my time, that was ubiquitous. Ideology was everywhere, and um, everything was scrutinized from the lens of alignment with Marxist-Leninist ideology. So that was my experience in school in the USSR and in Moscow State University. Like, curriculum was constantly reviewed, and uh, educators strived to represent sciences, you know, Russian science as predominant, and uh, scientific theories were declared bourgeois, and uh, Western ideologies and 
entire disciplines were uh, declared uh, hostile to Marxist-Leninist ideology, and uh, examples include genetics or cybernetics. So that happened before my time, but even during my time, there were smaller examples of this sort. And um, uh, what uh, I see now, what reminded me of that, is that uh, uh, third, you know, there is this concept of... Uh, science being colonial, notion of science being colonial, and this uh, very active cause to decolonize curriculum and to change the way we teach science and how we talk about it in order to promote uh, certain causes, social justice causes, and that is very similar to how it was done in Russia where everything was uh, serving one goal, to promote the cause of... Uh, a proletariat and to advance world revolution and everything was really looked through class struggle and how you know science and uh, everything was advancing class struggle. Uh, what about Hebrew University? Did you find it there too? No, no, that was actually great. Uh, uh, when we came to Hebrew University, it was my first trip abroad. And it was immigration. So that's actually maybe a story I wanted to share because, you know, when I was growing up in the Soviet Russia, uh, we did have big dreams. And we were encouraged to have big dreams as children. And uh, when you invited me to space show, I actually remember how important fascination of space was. And as kids, many of us dreamed to become an cosmonaut, astronaut. Right? Uh -huh. And at this time, it actually wasn't a crazy dream. It was a big dream, but, you know, we could um, think of our, you know, there were ways you would pursue it. Even if you are a girl, because we had Tereshkova, the uh, first uh, female astronaut. And, you know, if you're really serious about it, you could sign up for youth clubs, focusing on technology. You can join math and physics Olympiads, as I did. So that wasn't a crazy dream. But we didn't even dare to dream of seeing another country, especially Western country. So I remember, you know, we would watch TV shows and you see how interesting it is. But, you know, I wouldn't even think, oh, one day I can visit America or Israel or Great Britain. It was just in the domain of impossible. And uh, when we went to Israel, we didn't know much of course, beyond Russian propaganda. So it was my first encounter with the Western country. And uh, I was surprised uh, how different it is from uh, the way we were taught about the West. I saw that people are uh, very uh, humane and much more focused on humanistic values than in Soviet Union. That was one big lie that we were taught that West is uh, oppressive and uh, people are uh, in constant struggle and uh, uh, all that. So that was obviously not true. And uh, I also discovered how uh, universal science is as a set of values because when I came to Hebrew University, uh, my English was very bad and I barely I couldn't speak Hebrew either. And at the same time, I immediately felt uh, uh, 
at home, at comfortable among my people, because it was clear that we all share common values. We all speak the same mathematical language. You know, if I couldn't express myself verbally, I would write equations, and that was good enough. So that was a big uh, um, personal revelation of how science is uh, uh, universal and not affected by political views or culture and that it's beyond, it transcended. And uh, that's uh, probably one of the reasons that I'm very upset now to hear uh, this narrative that science can be uh, tools of oppression or tools of promoting certain inequalities or racist or colonial and so on, because I just think it's manifestly wrong. Let's take your phone call. Uh, hi, caller. Thank you very much for waiting. Who are you and where are you, please? Hi, David. This is John in Fremont, California. Ah, you did call. Good to hear from you. Thank you. Uh, Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show. And um, it's it's so important that uh, your your paper and your views uh, come out. I, I was reading your paper and saw that um, some some schools want to no longer teach Newton's laws and they want to change them to the three fundamental laws of physics um, because he was white and um, uh, the new ideology that you, you talk about calls for decentering whiteness and, and decolonizing the curriculum. This sounds like insanity to me. I, I, I just, uh, I, I don't, I don't know how we can fight back against this. I, I, people have to start standing up and uh, demanding that um, <laughs> we take a position on this. Uh, I think that, that there was a, there was an astronomer um, a while back, a few months. I, I think he came on the show, David, who um, uh, wanted to talk about exoplanets, and he got canceled. From a university yeah. back Yeah, east. from Harvard. He and he and Yale took him on and, and let him speak in a non astronomical position. Yeah. I can tell you about the story, I know about it, yeah. Yeah, that he he was blocked from being a, uh an astronomy professor lecturer in a public lecture series. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so I, it, I mean, it sounds like the only the only way to stop this is to stand up against it. I strongly agree, and that's why I decided to take my chances and speak up, and uh, I will speak more, and I think more people will speak more. Now, about Newton, uh, maybe uh, it is crazy, and it happens not only in some, you know, obscure school. These type of things are happening everywhere in serious universities, like University of Sheffield in UK, engineering program doesn't teach Newton laws anymore. Now, most recent example is even worse. Um, in New Zealand, uh, the government uh, decided that they will now teach uh, indigenous uh, knowledge, like collection of legends from Maori, um, on par with science. So that would be alternative science course. So some students can take a normal science course and some could take this indigenous knowledge course, and they are to be considered equivalent, just different ways of knowledge. And uh, several, a number of scientists protested, and these people who protested get uh, really badly counseled. They were put under investigations. 
for some time they wanted to strip them from their owners, from the New Zealand Royal Society. Uh, some of them were fellows of the society, so they wanted to revoke this fellowship. But I do not think it didn't go uh, further. And uh, uh, you can read about it, and uh, you can, you know, just imagine what kind of damage for future generations it will cause. That some students will be taught non-science, and uh, they will be given this uh, uh, completely misleading uh, education, and uh, uh, will not get an opportunity to learn uh, uh, real science. Well, Anna, in your state, California, John, your state too, um, they want to get rid of advanced placement in science and math. Um, uh, they, they don't they're saying that this is not equity-based, and uh, so they're in public schools. They're starting the process of of getting rid of advanced placement classes, uh, and they're also saying that that math is racist when you teach two and two is four, and they need That's to change that. You probably heard of all of this, Anna. So you are you speaking out at the high school and, and the lower levels, or just at the college levels? So that happens at the school at the K-12. Yeah, K-12. It's uh-huh. concerning. And in some schools, they already adopted this experimental curriculum that is anti-racist math teaching, which is exactly what you said. If you insist that there is a right answer to the problem, that's racist. If you, you know, people, students are taught... Uh, trauma-informed mathematics, and they tell that mathematics is a means of oppression and racism instead of actually teaching mathematics. And uh, so these are about curriculum, but also the programs are dismantled and advanced program for kids that excel in mathematics in public schools. Uh, so these programs are under threat now, and the proposal that call for that um, it's there. It is suspended now, partially because a number of people signed petitions against it. I signed it myself. And But it's not uh, trashed, and uh, this um, uh, work continues. And, uh, yeah, the justification for getting rid of advanced classes is... Um, um, it's just that. They say that demographics in these classes doesn't reflect demographics of our society. Therefore, the programs are racist. So they blame programs for uh, social inequalities, which is uh, manifestly wrong, because these programs actually weigh for everyone, regardless of their background, to get their chance in advance. Well, what does this mean 20 years in the future if, this kind of education is adopted all around the United States. Are we the only country doing this, or uh, are the only countries that are going to have real science and real math the, the totalitarian countries, and, and they're the only ones who are going to be able to advance? Well, uh, the prospects, I think, are green, because if we uh, uh, jeopardize our education, in STEM, uh, obviously, doesn't work well for our future competitiveness. Now, what happens in other countries? Um, I think it varies. I think U.S. really leading the uh, <laughs> leading the world, and not in a good way. 
uh, in China, uh, with all the uh, problems that the regime has, the education is still merit-based, and science is also merit-based. So I think if things continue this way, uh, we will lose uh, our ability to... Uh, to, to be competitive, uh, to be at the same par as China and other countries. In Europe, um, uh, in some, I talk a lot to my European colleagues about that, and similar trends appear, but they are still uh, much less prevalent. So uh, the, I do not know what happens now in Russia. I haven't been <laughs> visiting for a long time, but... Uh, I think uh, we're really in a dangerous uh, position right now because some of these uh, changes uh, will uh, not just cause some immediate losses, they will uh, cost us dearly in the future, 20 years out. John, you're still on the line. Do you have anything more to add or do you um, want to say something more? No, I'm I'm good, David. Thank thank you for coming on, Anna, and um, I hope that uh, more people hear about this. So thank you, John. Uh, I'll sign off. Okay. Thank you, uh, listeners. You can call. Uh, maybe you know what's going on in your area, um, and uh, you know if you're outside the United States and you want to call, you probably can't call on the toll-free line. But if you email me, I will be glad to give you the direct call number, and and uh, you can call us. Um, uh, toll-free line for those of you who do want to call us, 866-687-7223. I'm curious, just for my own sake, when you were at, at Berkeley, um, what were the years you were at Berkeley? From 96 to 98. I spent two years as a postdoctoral fellow. So what was it like at Berkeley then? Because I, I have a sense of what it's like now because I – I meet so many people from Berkeley because I just live across the bay from it, and and of course I I stay up on the news in California. Was any of this going on in Berkeley back then, and maybe flying under the under the radar? You know, it probably was, but um, uh, in sciences, in chemistry, uh, we really didn't see any of this because uh, you know we were talking. Uh, I do not even remember talking about politics with my fellow. Postdoctoral students, we talked a lot about uh, science, about immediate projects we were working on. We talked about, uh, you know, our plans for the future, but uh, we were oblivious to these trends. And now, well, when well, I well, not today. <laughs> yeah, no, no, not today. Unfortunately, it's true. If you look at some uh, professional websites, you will see. Okay, so some people in STEM declaring that you know. Anna, I gotta, I gotta ask you. I'm gonna jump in here. I, mm -hmm. I, I just maybe you can explain it to me. Let's just take Berkeley as an example. They've got Nobel laureates on the faculty of Berkeley. They, they've got Lawrence Livermore Lab on, you know, the the premier nuclear place in the world, or or one of the top two or three. How in the hell can these professors? sign on to this and even worse how can how can they be silenced by maybe others who are more activist in 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 the departments i mean we're talking about a group of people that are so beyond awards and recognition and accomplishments compared to scientists at most other schools around the world 
How does this happen at a place like Berkeley? These Nobel laureates, these top people, they should be screaming and shouting from Sprout Tower. To, to hell with you people. You don't know what you're talking about. You're, you're going to screw California and the world for generations to come. Uh, I don't get it. I, they're, uh, they, they're, so, they're silent. Yeah. They're silent. I think, the method, mm-hmm. uh, I think there is no simple answer to this question because there are different uh, people that uh, are silent or signing up to these ideas for different reasons, and we should acknowledge them. So I think there is a group of people who get uh, uh, fooled into believing these ideas, because, um, and, you know, there are historic precedents of this type, because when people see real societal inequalities and problems, you know, they feel strongly about it, and that's good, because people care. But then uh, where uh, danger is, uh, people may fall victim when they hear certain ideology coming in and saying, oh, we will solve this problem. And we will really make our society much better if we only rename the equations and stop teaching mathematics uh, properly. And that's a logical, you know, a trap that some fall. That's one group. And another group, probably biggest one based on what I hear from people, are people that are afraid and self-censored. And that came very clear from the emails I received, where about 25% of emails were saying that, uh, uh, you know, how people afraid to speak up, and uh, often even compelled to express politically dominant opinions here in the U.S., in all type of schools, when people feel compelled to stand up and say that, yes, mathematics is racist, we need to undo it, teaching, even though privately they do not believe in it. And uh, that's part of this uh, bigger problem of uh, epidemics of censorship and fear and cancel culture. And there are quantitative polls. There is a recent poll in MIT when faculty were surveyed at MIT, right? Right. Highly uh, uh, people protected by tenure, people in the best uh, uh, university. And uh, you would be shocked, shocked, David, to find out that 60 to 80 percent of them feel that they cannot speak up, that they self-censor. So that's how bad it is. Uh, at university campuses and in our society, and it's much worse than it was at McCarthy era because there are polls that go back assessing self-censorship and fear of people to speak back to late 40s. So we now outbeat the worst uh, uh, times in our history here. Let me take so a... Go ahead. No, no, just wanted to say that that, that fear, uh, which is not unfound, that explains why we see so many people that know that it's wrong, that they remain silent. Uh, you have another caller on hold, so let's see who wants to talk to you. Uh, hi, caller. Uh, good afternoon. Who are you and where are you, please? And uh, thank you for waiting. Uh, this is Marshall, and okay. I always wait. Uh, my question is, is other disciplines being censored in the same way. And the prime example that comes to me is in the music industry, you have Wagner. Wagner 
had all sorts of political views that were way out of sync in his time, and uh, I haven't heard anything about uh, censoring different musicians and uh, so on like that for their ridiculous beliefs. Well, you are not up to date, so they do cancel musicians now in some universities. You can, I can uh, probably dig out a couple of examples, but I heard already about School of Music explicitly canceling uh, some musicians for their uh, uh, not perfect moral standing, let's put it this way. So it does happen now in science, in arts, in music, and all across intellectual uh, spectrum. <laughs> well, in that but case, I have to apologize for being in such a small town. Uh, uh, I was wondering about other disciplines like uh, economics. Is there anything in particular there? Uh, well, I'm, uh, I would be out of my depth to talk about economics, but I am listening regularly to a show uh, by Glenn Lowry. He is economist, brilliant economist from Brown University. Mm -hmm. uh, he's talking a lot about how ideology subverts economics, and uh, he makes specific emphasis on how some of these ideologically driven initiatives harm the very people they claim to protect, like yes. black population, for example. So he would be the expert to learn how economics... What was his last... What did you say his last name was? Lowry. Glenn Lowry. Do you know how to spell it? Uh, yes, it's, um, uh, one second. Oops. L-O-U-R-Y. Okay, Lori, all right. All right. Lori. Thank you. Uh, Marshall, continue. Oh, well, uh, that's pretty much my, uh, uh, my question is the fact that it's uh, leaking onto other areas besides uh, just mathematics and physics. Um, you know, I'm of the category of people that uh, studied the Shamir conjecture and realized that the people that did that work and uh, Wise's proving of it, uh, phenomenal piece of work, and there's no reason to deny them uh, the credit for solving it uh, yeah. when they're the ones that did it. Yeah. No, if you take this um, reasoning to its logical conclusion, right, they will start uh, censoring and removing uh, scientific work of people uh, for their political view. For example, we can say, okay, here we have uh, someone who found cure for cancer. But this person, you know, put some offensive tweets or some post on social media that reveals his <laughs> views are not up to high standard. So, therefore, we do not want to know anything about his scholarship and will not take this cure for cancer. But that's exactly what happens now in sciences, not only uh, through cancellation campaigns, but also through funding mechanisms and things of that nature, because we hear a lot now how uh, funding decisions are now including uh, some ideological uh, component. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also hear about the professional societies uh, introducing uh, these new policies that 
they will remove the words if people were found guilty of certain transgressions and so on. So that is already happening to some extent. Well, thank you very much, and I'll let somebody else talk. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you. Bye. Uh, listener, you too can call us, and uh, it is 866-687-7223. You can also email us, drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. Uh, Cheryl is in New Orleans with a question for you, and um, Cheryl says, I have two high school age kids. And I've noticed this creeping into their high school science classes. And, in fact, their requirements for science are starting to get watered down. I'm wondering what this does to their uh, chances for getting into a high-level university when they have this kind of class on their, college, on their high school transcript. Does this serve as an impediment do the colleges pay no attention to it? What happens to the student who had this kind of curriculum in high school, possibly mandated by the local school board? Can they still get into quality universities? So university admission is extremely complicated question now because it's also been affected by ideology. And, uh, for example, the entire University of California system they completely dropped out any standardized test. Right, I'm they aware of that, yeah. They said the tests are racist, therefore we will not do them. So I do not know how admission will proceed now, whether it will be some lottery, whether it will be some uh, diversity quotas. So um, I have no idea. So, But I can tell for sure that the ability of students to excel in science classes will be strongly affected because science is hard. And you cannot teach someone uh, math and science and all the components that go in, you know, in a course of like year or two. It's really important that students get exposed to mathematics, to application of it, to physical sciences from early age and consistently studying it. So there is like no shortcut about it. And when we see these courses in school watered down, we see the effect of it as teachers at university. I have been teaching at USC for more than 20 years now, and uh, we get, uh, by all objective metrics, very high cut of students coming with top grades from their schools. But I see that their ability to solve simple problems deteriorates. So I can really see the decline in their ability to actually, you know, learn, do chemistry, and perform at the same level as the generation of students were able before that. When you have so, when you have foreign students in the class, do you see a difference? Uh, foreign students, uh, uh, again, there is a wide spectrum, but uh, in graduate programs, so uh, I see that foreign students those that, you know, we admit that come to USC have much uh, more rigorous uh, training and are more capable to pursue high-end uh, research. Like stuff that I do that is very heavy in mathematics. And 
So I uh, actually, most of graduate students in my group are international students. <sighs> Amazing. Um, are you the only one in your department that speaks out? Uh, speaks out maybe, but I know that many of my colleagues support these ideas and uh, privately agree with me. Um, I have another question for you. And uh, by the way, listeners, it's uh, if you want to call 866-6877-223. So this is Frank, and Frank is in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, he says, I know space is not your field, although certainly chemistry plays a role in space. Um, how do you see all of this affecting the space disciplines? Uh, they're not just engineering, but they're across the board. Uh, is this something that should concern us in the space industry now or in the not-too-distant future? Well, absolutely, you know. So uh, if we stop teaching mathematics and we stop hiring people by merit, and if we will start uh, uh, undermining research in uh, these disciplines, uh, you know, rockets will not fly. Rockets fly because Newton laws are correct, and uh, my research, uh, I do have part that is somewhat relevant. It's uh, combustion research, and, um, you know, uh, if we start undermining this research, it will also affect uh, technology uh, pretty quickly. Now, uh, I can tell you a story about space program in Russia because... Um, uh, I just recently read a fascinating book about history of space program in Russia. And I described a lot of technical uh, aspects of it, which for me were interesting, especially the chemical part of it, you know, which fuels are used and what designs were used and also computer component because computer uh, control of uh, spacecraft was important part of it, and failures in software were responsible for many lost missions. So that was a kind of aspect that, to me, it resonated very well. So, but uh, the story is that uh, Russian, Russia, Soviet Russia, USSR, had an edge in space. They sent Sputnik in, they sent first person in. So, but uh, in the course of less than 20, 15 years, in about 10 years, they hopelessly lost their presence. And Americans were first on the moon, and the Russian program really declined. And this book that explains how, you know, things were, uh, how the program operated, it makes it abundantly clear that the reason why Soviet space program came to its demise is this political control of technology and science. It was absolutely clear. And um, uh, that, I think, is real danger for our space program. Uh, I guess we don't learn lessons from others very well. Yeah, it seems like history is very quickly forgotten in the course of less than one generation. Um, have, have you – well, here, I'll, I'll – I'll ask you the, this listener question again before I go on to, to my question. So this is Sandra in Seattle. and a lot of Seattle listeners. Um, Sandra says, I'm wondering if you have ever met 
face-to-face for a discussion with the political side of this, the politicians who advocate and uh, insist upon and work to have these policies put into place. Have you ever had the chance to talk with them about their understanding of science and technology and related fields and about what this does to people and to our future compared to how they rationalize it or advocate it? I think such a conversation between yourself and, say, the governor or any of the politicians would be very worthwhile. Have you ever done that? No, I haven't done that. Uh, I never met with politicians about it. I know my friend, uh, mathematician from Irvine, who is uh, uh, actively involved in uh, promoting mathematics curriculum, um, saving mathematics from this intrusion, she did get eventually to speak to politicians, and I, I agree that it's critically important. Now, I did speak face-to-face. However, these people in the universities, in professional societies that promote this ideology, because this ideology is not coming from the top. So that's very important to realize. So we cannot blame the situation on politicians. We can blame many other things on them, but not the intrusion of ideology. And to give you an example, so let's consider this most recent case in the professional society. So as I already mentioned, I'm editor for a chemistry journal for Royal Society of Chemistry. So, and uh, in the past couple of years, uh, Royal Society of Chemistry had completely kind of taken over internally by um, social justice agenda. And uh, the way it manifests itself in uh, uh, publishing is that they introduced censorship to censor offensive content, and they also introduced programs that call for quotas in appointing editors, and even, it's like ridiculous, in maintaining gender quotas for selecting reviewers for chemistry papers, which is, I mean, completely ridiculous. So from where it's coming from, it's not coming from the government, it's coming from internal uh, RSC people, they established Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, and this community set itself to work in enforcing these ideas. Now, we can ask how come that, uh, you know, such committees are getting established and empowered to do that. But uh, what I see on the ground, a lot of these things are coming not from the top, but from within the communities, from within the universities, from within uh, professional societies. Um, you have another uh, email, and this is from um, uh, Ted, and Ted is in Kansas City. And uh, uh, Ted says, I'm in the medical profession. Uh, I'm not a caregiving doctor or nurse, but I am in that profession. We have a real concern that what is going on in the schools now will greatly impact the quality of physicians and maybe even eliminate a lot of U.S. students from going to medical school, thus taking students from different international locations. Have you had any interaction with the USC Medical School to see how any of this is impacting their school and the future flow of highly trained and very technical physicians? 
Medical profession is in danger. I didn't uh, talk with UC people about what's going on, but I did uh, hear from other schools and there were recent uh, publications that talk about how curriculum is changed and how concepts of uh, heredity and concepts of uh, sex and biological determinants of it are removed, how you know, language is changed and doctors are, future doctors are told to call, uh, you know, pregnant women, pregnant people and so on. And um, so, and some of it, you know, it's not just changing the name and language, you know, it's really that uh, important concepts are no longer being taught. And uh, that will uh, have an effect. So I do not know if it can be mitigated by bringing students from abroad because um, it's not like bringing chemistry-trained students from abroad. With chemistry, you can go in like I did and uh, advance professionally by just doing your chemistry. If you are coming with a medical diploma, then you have to go through some pretty sophisticated and rigorous tests to be certified, and that may be... Uh, can make it less attractive to people from abroad. Why would they want to come to this country and go through this additional training to, uh, you know, is it? <laughs> so they may not want to do it. So I think we will have a shortage of uh, properly trained medical professionals. And then also, you know, don't forget about background. Like if you go back to math and chemistry and physics, uh, a lot of students in my class uh, are uh, aiming to medical school, pre-med, medical professionals. And we're always striving to teach them at the highest rigorous level because it's very important. And medical school always wanted us to be strict and teach them, you know. So in some sense, we are a leader class. So, you know, it pains me, but, you know, when I teach general chemistry, it breaks some people's dreams. Some of them do not make it through. But uh, it's very important for maintaining high quality of uh, people who, that go to medical school and that they are capable of uh, learning this extremely difficult and advanced curriculum and be effective doctors. Now when we hear about these initiatives that call for changing uh, the way we teach, removing tests, and uh, removing all these, you know, rigorous things that are called to be sources of inequity. Uh, you may ask what it will mean for, you know, what kind of students will come to medical school. So it is very important. And, uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, uh, I think we need to be worried about it. Um sort of tongue-in-cheek, but, but not really. I'm, uh, I'm just thinking um, if I needed to take my dog to a vet and I looked up their resume and, and saw that it was strong in these areas, there's no way in hell I'd take my dog to that vet. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, you know, and probably the same if I was looking at resumes with doctors and dentists. Uh, <laughs> but I'm 75, and I, I don't know what 
someone in the 30s or 40s might do if, if they needed the vet, the dentist, or the doctor. Uh, they they may think this is the the standard background for someone going into veterinarian training or dental training or medical school. Uh, I mean, you know, my background is very different at 75 than than somebody who's 30 or 35 or 40 today. So yeah, I do not know. I think people uh, when it concerns when it has such immediate outcomes for their well-being and health, probably would use common sense until understands that they want a doctor who studied real chemistry and real <laughs> mathematics and real medicine and not social justice type of medicine or mathematics. Um, I mean, you live in in one of the states that is pushing this and leading the way. Is there? Are you aware of? Um, I guess I'm going to use the word counter attack or strategy to to try to resist this or or go against it or or show that it, it's false or is it just you know grassroots a parents group here or uh, a couple of people over here uh, is, is there um, any kind of organization uh, or or plan or grand strategy to to try to stop this from happening? Well, that's a danger, you know. That's a danger that uh, you know democracy and uh, humanistic uh, societies are vulnerable, and uh, that's exactly how in Soviet Russia, for example, why Bolsheviks came to power. Uh, Bolsheviks were extremely kind of small fringe uh, group of uh, opposition to the regime, and more moderate and more sane people just uh, lost. Uh, uh, to this uh, extreme and very well-organized group. So uh, what uh, is happening now is just that. We have a lot of people that have uh, uh, good understanding of what is right, what is wrong, and uh, but they are not organized because intellectuals are usually do not organize itself easily into groups. And uh, because of that, there is no systematic opposition. There is none. So there are uh, scholars that speak against, and uh, that's good. So there are certain outlets that uh, publish, uh, that agree to publish papers of the type, uh, you know, that I published, which actually was very difficult. It wasn't easy to find a home for this. And um, uh, I think we need to do more and maybe attempt to organize. So there is a... uh, organization called Heterodox Academy, it's an international organization, and they uh, try to promote uh, uh, kind of open conversations on different topics and cultivate uh, cultivate a civilized discourse, because their approach is to look, you know, to allow people to speak, to find solutions to difficult problems. So I think it's a good organization, but it's not aiming specifically to oppose, uh, you know, these tendencies. Um, uh, there are universities, you know, I do not know if you heard about new university. About so some people get together and put a new university together, University of Austin, uh, as opposition to, as a, as a possible solution to the problem that universities get taken over by ideology. So that's an example. Whether it will be successful, I do not know, because it's really hard to build something big like that. Right. 
Some societies actually made one more thing. Uh, okay. Uh, mass society, American mass society, get completely taken over by ideology, and a group of mathematicians started a new mass society, which is uh, purely research-oriented. Again, it's not meant to push back. It's just meant to provide professional support for people who are interested in actually doing math mathematics. Uh, so I have an, an email. And uh, he says, um, hi, I listened to the space show. Uh, my name is Larry. Uh, I'm not going to tell you where I'm from, but here, here's the deal. I'm a graduate with a bachelor's degree in science from a decent university. But when I was in high school, again, not telling you where I'm from, my high school built a CubeSat, and we actually got it to space. I remember what we went through to build that CubeSat. Uh, there was a lot of math. There was a lot of electronics. There was a lot of building of components. We had plans that we could follow, and we had a teacher that worked with us on it. But uh, I doubt seriously that we could have built a CubeSat and got it into space and have it work without knowing something about math and basic science and electronics. I have a younger brother who's seven years younger than me. He's coming into the same school, and those programs are no longer available. And oh. my college class, we built a satellite. We didn't get it launched while I was still in school, but I think a class after me did try to get it launched. But we built a more sophisticated type of CubeSat in the college class that I was in, and um, I wanted it to fly while I was still in college, but that did not happen. I doubt seriously that that program will exist if they don't teach real math to students, real electronics, uh, even how to solder different kinds of electronic things together, because as we learned in high school, some things get soldered one way, some things use a different kind of soldering, and it makes a difference on the kind of circuitry and what's going to happen with that satellite. Uh, my younger brother is very upset that he doesn't get a chance to build a satellite, but maybe while he's still in high school, there will be some kind of amateur club that does it after hours. I don't know if that will happen or not for him. Uh, but this is really tragic. Uh, I don't work in the field, but it was a really big part of my education, and I'm sorry that others can't have that same opportunity but you can't do something like that if you don't know that two and two equals four and if you don't know some basic science uh, that isn't dependent upon ideology because the satellite isn't going to fly and broadcast back to Earth based on ideology. We ought to keep that in mind. It breaks my heart to hear that because, yeah, I know, like, how important for me was to get exposed to some of uh, these, you know, clubs, technical groups in school to get feel of science and technology, right? How you can make things, how, and then appreciation to what it takes to do it. And uh, that's, uh, you know, this type of experiences, it's something that really can inspire young people to go into these areas and acquire tools and excel, and now we are ruining it. It really breaks my heart to hear about the demise of these programs. And uh, 
Yeah, I I completely can see it happening, and that's also part of this um, um, trend now. Now, speaking of this, you know, one reason why I am getting so upset about this performative social justice campaign, right? All those people in, uh, say, who sit down on these committees and deciding whether to keep Millican name or remove it, people that sit down on these other renaming committees, or people that sit down on language policing committees, right? So they could have go out and run a club like that and teach students in school to solder, to put things together about electronics, about math problems. So that would have a positive impact on uh, so many lives. That would inspire, you know, kids. If they do it in disadvantages areas, it would inspire minority students and help them to excel, right? So you could do that. Instead, what we see is that all these, uh, you know, uh, activists that uh, speak about social justice, you know, they run around and cancel lectures, uh, remove, rename buildings and uh, uh, police language. So, I mean, it's, it's very wrong. It's very sad. Um, do the students speak out from your experience, or they just go along and regardless of what they think about it, but they don't want to rock the boat, so to speak? There is a variety, and uh, there are students that wrote to me that say that they do not want to rock the boat, and uh, uh, it was pretty painful, actually, to see how scared some students are. For good reasons, because uh, the extent of kind of intolerance that we see now is is mind-boggling. So many students are afraid to speak and are trying to get along. Some people are trying to speak and think how to organize. I get emails from students that say that they organizing like these speech clubs at their universities to promote conversation and they recommended resources from existing organizations such as FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. They help student groups to organize. Uh, so, and some students unfortunately get uh, brainwashed uh, into thinking that, uh, you know, being and uh, become uh, the social justice activists that put out petitions to rename buildings and repackage soap and do things like that. Uh, amazing listeners, we're coming up toward the uh, end of our program. So if you would like to send us an email, there is still time, Dr. Space, D-R-S-P-A-C-E at thespaceshow.com. And the toll-free line, if you still would like to give us a call, one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. Uh, Anna, are you planning to continue to publish on this topic? Do you have anything in in the works that you're going to be putting out there? Um, what's your next step? Well, unfortunately, yes. You know, <laughs> unfortunately, because I really do not want to spend my time on this, because I feel my primary role is to, you know, mentor my students, research students, and work on chemistry problems. But I feel that it's such an important topic that uh, we need to continue. So I have a new piece written about censorship in scientific publishing, 
and uh, other examples of how scientific publishing getting uh, uh, diverted. And uh, I'm also writing uh, another piece uh, for uh, liberties. It's a series of publications when I talk more about historic examples and things like that. So, yeah, so I'm still writing about it. Well, if you, uh, when they're available, if you send them to me, I will put them up on the on the blog for this show so that people can continue to read your work. Absolutely, will do. Thank you. Um, do you have any advice for people when they encounter this, either professors or teachers that might be listening, even even at K through 12, for example, uh, or or parents or students? Uh, what, what would your advice be if they encounter this? I will advise people not to fool themselves into thinking that those things will go away. They will not go away, and, uh, you know, we know from history how bad it can become. So I would advise people to act, but, of course, uh, everyone is aware that it's not uh, safe, maybe not safe, so I would uh, advise people to reach out for organizations that uh, uh, are emerging now that uh, try to provide resources and help people to organize. And I can mention several of them. Uh, there is this FIRE organization for individual rights and education. That's for people on campuses and education, including students. If you get uh, harassed for speaking up your mind, that's organization that can offer protection. There is Academic Freedom Association. This is organization for uh, specifically defending free speech uh, on university campuses. So if you are a faculty or instructor, so you can get some protection by this, from this organization. And there is a really great uh, organization called FAIR. Uh, fair for all, so it's foundation um, for, okay, so I'm spacing out on the acronym, but it's organization that foundation against intolerance and racism. So, and this organization is uh, focusing a lot on schools and education and uh, community groups and what happens in companies, and they have wonderful resources on their website, and uh, I see that they already have some communities organized, so I didn't interact with them, but it seems to me that that's uh, a possibility to get some support and advice how to deal with these problems. You have another caller who just came in. Can you stick around and take the call? Sure. Okay. Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to the program. Who are you and where are you, please? Um, this is John in Fort Worth. Hi, John. Go for it. Um, I, I was wondering about the time period of a lot. It seems like this has ramped up a lot in the very recent time period, like the last five years or so. And I'm wondering, to what degree do you think this is kind of really a symptom of kind of a reaction to the previous presidential administration that's sort of an emotional pushback that's gone kind of irrational. Um, you know, um, in other words, I think this comes in the context of a broader U.S. political context, at least in the U.S., but maybe I'm wrong about that. But I didn't hear a whole lot about that, you know, maybe. I mean, it was always there, but five years, like ten years ago, 
it didn't seem to be, you know, so much right. activity. It's actually excellent observation, and um, so the things, as I learn now, existed for like since eighties. This ideas of you know critical race theory and this uh, uh, systemic racism and things. So and they were kind of contained to you know just university clubs, you know mm-hmm. scholars that were studying this. We didn't even hear about them in science at university. Right? It really was con- contained within social studies and humanities. Now. Uh, what uh, happened recently, I think, uh, my impression is that it is, uh, it was facilitated by extreme polarization of our society. Mm-hmm. And the fact that people kind of stopped uh, uh, talking to each other across the aisle and that political, spe- political spectrum kind of stopped to become a spectrum and we became like very binary, right? We have like uh, two two groups and you choose, uh, you know, whether you are right or left and then uh, you do not, uh, uh, you subscribe to the whole set of values and you do not contradict your party line. And um, uh, so that really, I think, happened relatively recently and uh, I think this kind of extreme uh, uh, extreme division in political in political leadership did facilitate this uh, uh, phenomenon, and uh, I think a lot of this is came in response to uh, previous uh, presidential <laughs> leadership. So I think that uh, that that is responsible. I mean. Responsible doesn't mean that it's a correct reaction, right? So we can yeah. say that that's how it happened. And, uh, you know, I always thought that uh, in this country, like, strength of it is that, that people from different political and different views can work together and move things forward. And, uh, you know, like in science, we come in, we can have very different views. Some people are religious in one way, some are atheists some, uh, you know, different cultures, and we all forget about it and work together and, you know, launch rockets and make vaccines. So that works. Now, now it may end because uh, we see that people stop talking to each other and start acting in a very partisan way. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah, I think that's a, I just thought that might be, because I remember... During an earlier period, I was talking about that. I was reading some article where some professor was was, was a very much of an activist. Of the type you're talking about was was upset with the, how apathetic the students were and uninterested in doing anything. And now all of a sudden, you see all this activism. And I was thinking, well, what could have changed in that time period? That's kind of what I thought it would be, maybe. <laughs> the, the, yeah, that's also interesting observation that students became activists and many people. And on one hand, it's kind of there is a good uh, rationale behind it, right? So people care about issues. So that people want to contribute yeah. to society. That's a good thing. But the question is, what? how do you actually do it, right? What? Right. What is the right type of activism? How do you... How do you promote uh, social justice causes in a way that is productive and uh, uh, rather yeah. than, yeah, 
and fuels polarization and this. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you destroy, you try to promote people's situation by uh, increasing the crime in their communities, uh, decreasing the quality of their educational opportunity, doesn't seem like that's going to provide any real social justice advancement, does it? <laughs> well, a lot of uh, schoolers that are much more eloquent than me talk about it and support it by data. Again, I mentioned already Glenn Lowry, political economist from uh, Brown University. And there is also John McWhorter, who is a linguist, but he speaks a lot about these issues. And he makes these points over and over again, how much this performative activism, how much this emphasis on dismantling education and all that, how much it hurts the communities it purports to defend, how damaging it is for black and Hispanic communities. And, uh, you know, you should, uh, you can uh, read his writings because he's not only talking, uh, uh, I mean, he, he's very quantitative when he talks about it and explains and illustrates how how dangerous it is and how unproductive it is. Yeah. Well, I just I, I, say I support what you're doing and I hope you can continue and maybe find additional people in, the, in your uh, profession that will step up along with you as well as we can hope for. Thank you, John. Thank, for you. Your, thank you for your call, John. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Uh, I have one more email that came in. It'll probably be the last one of the program today. Uh, so um, this is from Harry in Chicago, and he says, Anna, I have grown up around the people that you're talking about for many, many years, and I've talked to them about history when they start promoting their social justice and their cancellation and other types of philosophy and ideology. And I asked them, point blank, aren't you aware of how many millions of people have been killed over the history of time by this type of socialism, by Marxism, by what the old USSR did, by all of these brutal leaders? And they all seem knowledgeable. These are not ignorant people, at least the people seeming to me to be in the leadership positions are not stupid. But what they tell me is that's old history. We know from history how to do it right this time so that it works and it won't produce those results. I'm sure you've heard something like this before, but do you have a comment on it? Why do they think they can do it differently or right so that this time their extreme socialism works? Uh, yeah, I heard this argument many times, and, uh, you know, history has shown that people use this argument many times, but the result is always the same. And I like this quote from uh, Vladimir Bukovsky, famous dissident. I'm reading now his book called Judgment in Moscow, when he talks a lot about um, Soviet times and puts out some extremely important documents that show uh, the cynicism of this ideology and how much they were successful in pulling Western liberals by their propaganda. So, and the quote goes like that. He says, Is it really surprising that whenever you get striving for equality and fraternity, the guillotine appears on the scene? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I uh, personally do think that it is, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, healthy and uh, 
humane society should have some elements of socialism and social support for people and uh, structures uh, in place and, you know, that people who uh, are rich uh, fork up some money through taxes to support people who are not very rich, you know, to a reasonable extent. So I do think uh, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, saying that all socialist ideas are wrong. But we do know for sure that when we put ideology as a as a driving force, right? So we know that that causes, uh, and when we start to take ideology unquestionably as a religion, right? When we are not talking about ideas and not discussing their consequences, we know that that always leads to this extreme illiberalism and uh, ultimately to blood and, uh, you know, piles of uh, uh, dead bodies. So rivers of blood and... Uh, mountains of their bodies. So, and we see now even, you know, in the U.S., uh, it's the country that used to be the leader of free speech. And uh, uh, what we observe now is that extreme censorship and council culture uh, took over in the course of several years, and, you know, numbers that I quoted already, we talk about 40, 60, 80% of people, depending on the demographics and specific area, afraid to speak their minds. You know, what kind of country it is? It's really getting close to uh, totalitarian uh, regimes. Do you personally believe these um, extreme socialism positions that we hear today and what you've been talking about can be students of history and be put into place benevolently and do it better so that millions of people don't get killed and lose their rights and lose their speech. Is there a way to do it better? Well, uh, I think we do have uh, humanistic principles and enlightenment principles, and they speak about democracy, they speak about uh, pluralism, Right, they speak about civil conversation, and they do not uh, allow for a dominant ideology to take hold. Right, so as long as we adhere to these liberal enlightenment values, yes, we can discuss uh, how certain social issues should be solved. But uh, if we go to the direction where uh, you know previous socialist regimes went. And when we start uh, uh, by appointing uh, one ideology and immediately declaring it unquestionable, when we say that we cannot question the first rule, you know, of Marxist ideology is that you do not question the Marxist ideology. So that's... So if we start from this point, then the result is known. So I think we should stick to liberal enlightenment values and use them as the guidance for navigating through difficult issues. You have an, another caller. I, I know we're way over the 90-minute mark, but uh, do you want to? Are you able to stay and take the last call? Yeah, that's okay. Nice. So listeners, this is the last call of the of the day. Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to the program. Who are you? Where are you? Are who are you? Where are you from, please? Hi, uh, this is Tony Cook, and sorry to come in so late, but yes, yes. it just occurred to me that there was something that happened this week that really 
tied into what you've been talking about. That's um, when, or actually it was last week, when the Hubble, I'm sorry, when the James Webb Space Telescope was successfully launched, uh, Bill Nelson spoke, uh, and uh, because it was Christmas, he did mention, you know, in, in this appreciation where he thanked all of the countries and partners for the great work they did, he mentioned that the greatness of the telescope had to do with looking at the universe, and he happened to mention God in it. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> oh, there were pe- people on Twitter, astrophysicists were saying, somebody's got to look into Congress on this. He has to be put out of NASA and all this and that. And they were really outraged. Because he mentioned And their God. interpretation was, yeah, their interpretation was that they, Bill Nelson was thanking God for building the James Webb Space Telescope. And that's not at all what he said. I actually linked the speech back to them. You know, he was very specific. He was thanking NASA, it, you know, the amazing ability it has to do these great things, the partners of different countries, different space agencies, this and that. And then he mentioned that the greatness of the telescope was that it would answer uh, time immemorial uh, feelings that people have about looking back at the at the universe. And then he tied it to Christmas because it was Christmas. But he was tied, tied, tied it to the Christmas star. But it was very innocuous. He wasn't. It was not a religious speech at all. But I thought that reaction was amazing. And then it's the same people who are defending not building the 30-meter telescope, which is partner of the James Webb Space Telescope, because some people think or alleged to think that Mauna Kea is a sacred mountain. For their for their culture. I, well, it's for their culture. So right, it's exactly. Yes. Yeah, so and but, then but there I was also a campaign oh, for I'm a telescope recently. Say it. Say it yeah. again, Anna. What? There was this campaign to rename the telescope. Uh, uh, was it the Webb Telescope or some other? Yes. It was, it was the Web, that was the Webb Telescope because people were alleging that. Uh, Webb was uh, homophobe and and something, but <laughs> right. but I know right. people who have actually looked at the history of that were not able to establish that he he did anything that yeah, promoted of homophobic policies that were in times. <laughs> Go ahead. What you're speaking at the same time? What were you going to say, Tony? Oh, um, I, it, just that historians who actually did look at his record could not find any evidence that people were fired because he, he you know, that because there were homophobic policies in place at the time that Webb did not establish. But he, he didn't, you know, people were saying that he, you know, wasn't allowing gay people to work and stuff. And, and you know, people who, who looked critically at that, didn't see there was any evidence for it. But nevertheless, the evidence doesn't matter to people who are on a campaign to smear him, I think. Yeah. Anna, but you, but my, you... point, my point was that people are not differentiating between religious, their religious sensitivities when it comes to, you know, uh, Hawaiian people and, and Christian expressions. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's the same group of people and it's the same mentality of intolerance. And this mentality of meme activism and people do not want to have a conversation and so let's say I heard this talk and let's say I do not think that we should be talking about God when launching a telescope. 
It may be my personal opinion. So what is the proper reaction? The proper reaction is to express this opinion in a civilized way and say, look, you know, I really, you know, whatever I think. But instead, mm -hmm. you know, this calls for blood and cancellation and, and names, giving names, giving offensive names for people. So that's really, unfortunately, the style of uh, discourse that we are witnessing. And it's coming from different groups. But sometimes these groups, as you pointed out, are overlapping. And uh, yes, yeah. so we will have the same group calling to stop telescope because it offends religious sensitivities of people, right. of native people. Uh, and uh, the same group will call to uh, fire this guy who mentioned God in this. Uh, so it's it's very uh, sad phenomenon, and uh, it's very damaging for our society. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And I'm, hey, again, I'm sorry to come on so late. Tony, yes. can you yes. post your tweets on this subject and put them on our blog so people can see it? Oh, I, I'll try to do that. I'll let you know if I have any trouble with it. But, okay, um, and, and I, if you, I'll, you I'll need to send them yeah. to me and maybe have me do it or something, uh, that's fine. But I, I think it would be really interesting for us to see uh, what went okay. down. Okay. Thank you, Tom. All right. Bye-bye. Oh, you're sure welcome. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Um, Anna, before you go, um, I'm going to dare to speak out because Tony said something and, and Nelson referenced God. So uh, maybe I'm off base, but um, uh, I've, I've told this story about miracles before, and uh, uh, nobody's ever clamped down on me and, and wanted to cancel me or, or censor me. But uh, my younger son, uh, who's in his late 30s, was was born with CF. And at the time, um, you know, we, we were told he wouldn't live to be seven, and then he wouldn't live to be 12 or 13, and on and on and on. And and then uh, the medicine improved, and brilliant doctors figured out this and that, and they figured out genetics, and they they figured out more. And then doctors in different pharmaceutical companies started making compounds and genetic compounds and this and that. And uh, they've got drugs that have normalized his life at, in his late 30s. Uh, and, and, you know, he probably, you know, can live a pretty normal life like anybody else. And uh, so to me, that is a miracle. So whether you believe in God or not, that that knowledge, that expertise, that capability, which incrementally developed in medicine specific for cystic fibrosis uh, was going on long before my son was born. But from my calendar from 1984 uh, on to now uh, involved unbelievable scientific technology, math, all sorts of things. I went to gene transplant sessions at Stanford uh, where they had people from Cal and and from UC Med School and Stanford Med School talking about how some of this was, was being done. Uh, I attended other classes just for my own interest to see how it's done. And I'm thinking if you, if you don't have the quality of people doing this kind of work, you're not going to have the kind of miracle that transpired three or four years ago when some of these drugs started hitting the market and they could be given to patients to revolutionize their lives. So whether God is involved in this process or you don't believe that, uh, or, you know, it's a miracle from God or a miracle of science or a miracle of math or whatever 
your belief system is. Maybe it's a miracle because a bunch of people were having chocolate malts at, at McDonald's and they stumbled on the ways to do things. But it really irks me because um, in in the United States, there's roughly 35,000 kids with cystic fibrosis at any given time. And then uh, Ireland has the biggest percentage, but it's throughout the world. It's not just in the United States. If you screw up the teaching for all of this bullshit, I don't know how else to say it. Who are you hurting when you when you deny this education to people that can develop this stuff down the road? Uh, not just for for CF, but for other illnesses, for other problems. Who are you benefiting and who are you hurting? And, you know, if you want to get mad because my son is white, okay, get mad. But you know what? It, it's benefiting sickle cell anemia. It's benefiting other problems that happen to other races and cultures. So if you take away advanced placement, you take away math, you stop letting them learn the history of science uh, and take away something of science because somebody – protested something or said something a hundred million years ago who the hell are you benefiting and who are you hurting and i'm living evidence how this has positively impacted and changed our family and my son's life and maybe millions of you out there listening i wish there were millions listening you haven't had anything like this touch you before but when you see it in action and you see it being taken away from future generations, man, you've got to speak out. And I, yeah. you know, the space show is not a big platform, but that's why I wanted Anna on the show. And I know this is not really the same thing as she's talking about what's going on with, with her, her work and science and all that. But if this was the name of the game, the people that changed the lives of people with cystic fibrosis would not have been able to do that. David, that's, that is, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's very personal, and uh, I can, I think I can relate to that. It's an amazing story, and you are absolutely right. And it's not only education that is affected now. Here is just one brief example. NIH now, our premier institution that funds fundamental research in medicine and natural sciences that are related to medicine, right? This right. organization that probably funded this research that led to this miracle. So this organization now changes the way it evaluates proposals. When people like me, like people in medicine, apply for proposals for funding to pursue certain research. For example, recent announcement asking for proposals that study brain and work on Alzheimer-related cures. So... Official solicitation says that successful proposals should include, in addition to science and research plan, a plan how this research will advance diversity, equity, and inclusion. Jesus. And that this plan on advancing diversity and equity will be used as part of evaluation. So that means that it's not the proposals that have the best promising ideas how to address these debilitated diseases, would be selected, but, you know, the proposals that advance diversity. So where we will be there, you know, in, in 20 years if uh, research funding will uh, follow the diversity rather than merit? 
So are they helping the minorities by taking on, I don't know, mediocrity or less than mediocrity or depriving merit-based work? I, I don't see how this benefits humanity going forward. This is this is a joke. It they're hurting the very people that they claim all this benefits. And uh, people, it, it may not have touched you, so maybe you're more apathetic about it than I am. But when you see how it changes the life of your child, or maybe it's your spouse, or or maybe it's just a good friend or something. Uh, Man, your eyes are really opened to just how horrible this is and how limiting it is. Uh, and it, it's going to have a fallout for generations to come. And uh, I, I, I don't know how you rein it in. I, I, it requires like smarter people than me. We, we cannot allow this to happen because it's truly awful. And, yeah, we have to find well, thank, thank goodness you're... Speaking out, I, I wish I had more professors that were on the show that speak out. Uh, Professor Avi Loeb has spoken out to some degree, uh, you know, says that he can only pursue his 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 work on extraterrestrial stuff and stuff like that because he has tenure, so they can't sack him. But if he if he didn't have tenure, he wouldn't be free to to speak out and and to do some of the work that he's doing. He wrote a whole book about it. Real quick before we go. How is this showing up in peer review uh, journals when you send in your work to be peer reviewed? Is there now a requirement to get through peer review that all papers or something have to address uh, social justice or diversity or something? Is it showing up in peer review requirements? Uh, it depends on the field and on the subject matter. So uh, the censorship of ideas that are perceived to be in conflict with social justice, so that can get censored or self-censored. And there are a number of examples recently, like one astronomer posted a paper, um, wrote a paper where he, um, him, where he tried to develop uh, quantitative tools to assess merit of junior scientists and project their future success. And he motivated the study by, you know, helping people to do better judgment when they hire people and, uh, you know, remove biases and uh, uncertainties due to our personal perception. So, and this idea that there is a merit and it can be quantified was very offensive to social justice people. So there was a protest, Twitter's, Twitter campaign, and he removed his paper in response to that and apologized for offending people. So that's an example of censorship and self-censorship. Now, in chemistry, if it's really chemistry paper, um, so unless, you know, people complain about the names of scientists, but chemistry concepts themselves are not considered to be politically charged yet. But what happens in publishing beyond that is much more worrying because the idea is that we should not just, you know, strive to use merit and execute peer review process to the best of our ability. That is now challenged, and uh, that is changing now. And um, some uh, publishing houses introduce the ideas of diversity in making scientific decisions. 
in inviting authors and even inviting reviewers. So Royal Society of Chemistry, they want the editors to use gender quota when they select reviewers and pay attention to reviewers' gender. Now, to me, it sounds crazy because it's not the gender of the reviewer. It's reviewers' expertise in a subject matter that I should strive to, you know, determine and get the best reviewer for each paper to make sure that valid science is published. But, uh, you know, that's what they do. I recently was asked to renew my contract with another publisher, Wiley, and I refused to sign current contract because it now has a clause that describes my responsibilities as an editor to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in reviewer pools, in scientific publications, in everything. And I refused to sign. I said it's irrelevant to scientific publishing, and it shouldn't be part of editorial work. So I do not know whether they will accept my... Uh, uh, protest, or I will just let me go and appoint an editor who will be fine with this criteria as part of editorial work. So, so it is creeping into hard sciences, including such boring disciplines as chemistry. <laughs> um, do you have any concluding comments? Any anything you'd like to leave us with today as we get ready to wind up? Can I uh, finish with a Russian joke? Sure. <laughs> So there are like two guys talking to each other, Jewish optimist and Jewish pessimist. And Jewish uh, pessimist, like, you know, says, look, situation is so bad, uh, it just, I think it cannot get any worse. And uh, the Jewish optimist said, oh, it surely can. <laughs> so I think the uh, situation is very bad now, but if you do nothing, it can get much, much worse. speaking out and, and coming on the show and uh, do send me your your next round of publications and I'll put them on the on the blog for this program and I hope we can talk some more and check in with you later in the year and and see uh, how things are going for for you and and for uh, and for science uh, and uh, getting away from ideology maybe maybe you'll have some optimistic good news for us my pleasure, and thank you very much. It was great fun. Thank you very much, Anna. We appreciate it. And, uh, uh, Mike, if you're listening, thank you for um, – this is Mike Grumpman at USC. He referred uh, Anna to me. So, Mike, if you're uh, listening or when you listen, thank you very much for the uh, referral. Uh, listeners, that's it for today. And uh, we want to thank Anna for being with us, all of your calls, all of your emails. And, uh, everybody, as always, keep looking up if you enjoy the rest of the weekend. Goodbye from Anna, David, and the Space Show.